Welcome to Dialogue Across Difference, an event series hosted by the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Join us as Center Director Larry Jacobs and guests engage in conversations across the political and policy spectrum on issues of the day. I'm Professor Larry Jacobs, and I direct the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs, and we have organized and convened today's conversation. Before we get started, I just want to mention at the bottom of the screen, you can see a Q&A button. That's where you come in. I uh, really want to encourage you to submit questions, um, love you know, questions that maybe raise issues that we haven't talked about or um, you know, ch challenges, that's also fine. Please do it in a civil way, we like that. Welcome and thank you for joining us for today's program, the 2022 midterm elections. Our guests today are Rebecca Piercy. She was political director of Senator Elizabeth Warren's presidential campaign. She oversaw uh, the strategy in all 57 states and territories and managed the staff in over 30 of those. She is currently vice president of the public affairs firm Bryson Gillette and oversees its local state and national campaigns. We're also joined by Kirsten Kukowski, who has been a, a prominent uh, political communications expert in the Republican Party. She was a communications director for the National Republican Party and communications director of some of the highest profile political campaigns in the country, including Scott Walker's uh, presidential campaign for the 2016 nomination. She's currently president of the woman owned and operated public relations K2 and company and is working on several Republican congressional campaigns in this cycle. Thanks to both of you for joining us today. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Now, I want to just jump in. Um, there's a lot to talk about, and somehow I'm feeling the time's going to fly by. Um, and I, we want to get to a lot of questions, and I can see they're all already starting to, to pile up. But let's just first kind of level set. Where are we um, in, in this political cycle? Um, you know, I think sometimes um, um, Americans come to an election, particularly midterm election, and think of it as any old election. Um, it's just like a presidential election. But the history suggests that the in-party, meaning the president's party, in this case, the Democrats, are really behind the eight ball. 17 of the 19 midterm elections, that is between the presidential elections, we've seen the uh, in-party lose seats in the House of Representatives. Um, Ms. Piercy, are the Democrats uh, behind the eight ball here? I think historically, you're absolutely right. The party in power has been behind the eight ball and it's usually been a really tough showing for the incumbent party. Things that come to mind for me as a Democrat and remembering the last time this happened are 2014 and 2010. I think that um, 1994 is another good example of Democrats being in power and losing a ton of seats and trying to figure out how to govern in that balanced government where we have the presidency, but maybe not the House or the Senate and maybe neither in either case. I think what's different about this cycle is that it's a cycle where we're running on new maps in the House. And so while they are, it's pretty clear what's gonna happen with some of these districts. I think what's going to be interesting is that no Democrat or Republican will have run in these new districts as they are currently drawn. So we may know how we think this district will perform, but we don't know for sure with the people that are going to be running in it in this cycle. So I think that there is a path. I think that it is tough, but I think that if we are able to run on the Biden agenda and put our money where our mouth is when it comes to message and what we've been able to deliver for the American people, it's actually going to be a more even fight than a 63 seat loss like it was back in 2010. 
So, um, you know, I've been looking at some of these projections and I would say if it seems like the median projection is that the, the Democrats are gonna lose 30 to 40 seats in the House. And so what I hear you saying, you know, presented in a very elegant way is that Democrats are not gonna get shellacked as Barack Obama put it, but it's still they're really uh, looking at losses and given how close the majority is in the House right now, um, they're probably going to lose control of the House representatives. I, I don't know if I necessarily think that's true. And I think we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about the midterms. And I can explain a little bit more then about why I, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think it's going to be tough. I don't think it's going to be a shellacking. And I know that a five-point swing is not that many seats. And we've got to figure out a way to maintain this. I, I will also say, you know, resources are scarce across the board. There's a Senate to also up for grabs. The house is going to be very expensive in a lot of these states where we're just now getting maps online in Pennsylvania. We still don't have them in Florida and Ohio to battlegrounds for some of these congressional and U.S. Senate races, frankly. And these are expensive places to play ball. And so I think that 10 months out, it's hard to say if this is going to be a we lose five or we lose 50 type of a year. Um, Ms. Kukowski, does a 30-seat loss for Democrats seem too conservative to you? I mean, obviously, uh, anecdotally, it feels to me, having worked on campaigns in 2010 and 2014, working on statewide and congressionals now, it feels like it's more like an election like 2010 and 2014 than it is 2018, right? And so that is just anecdotal. And that is just, you know, coming from an operative who's kind of just been out in the field working on campaigns. But I would say, you know, I agree with Rebecca. I think time will tell, but I will say that I feel much more comfortable running Republican races right now than I do Democrat races. And I think you have, an, you have a huge enthusiasm gap for Republicans, uh, in favor of Republicans, that I think is going to be a driving force in the next 10 months. Um, Ms. Piercy, um, when people talk about the environment, uh, you hear a lot of politicos use that phrase. Um, they're often talking about the fact that the in-party tends to see a dip in turnout. This has been especially true for Democrats, plus presidents, uh, you know, once they get in office, they get saddled with stuff that's going sideways. And Joe Biden has had plenty of sideways stuff going on with him. Um, it, does the environment itself, um, you know, kind of um, further um, uh, kind of add to the, the burden on Democrats? You know, put it bluntly, um, everything I'm seeing, including polling data, suggests that there are a lot of Democrats who are just so disappointed in Joe Biden that turnout seems, you know, we don't know for sure, but it seems, you know, on path to, to, to go down. I think that's generally right. I think environment does have a big impact on how these races are going to be run and frankly, how they're going to be won or lost. And so I think it will be incumbent upon Democrats who are running in these house races to make sure that their races are hyper local and not necessarily tied to what's happening with the Biden White House. They're not necessarily tied to what's happening on, you know, the Biden reelect numbers or COVID response or anything happening with inflation. And so, look, it's on us to, to run some really smart campaigns that are not cookie cutter coming on down from on high in Washington, D.C. If you've got a candidate who's running in Sarasota, make that a Sarasota specific race. And let's try and it doesn't always work, but I think it's like, this is what the strategy should look like. Let's think about our communities and run that race and not worry about what's happening in Washington, D.C. and how to align yourself with a national message that may not work with your local constituencies. Okay, folks, so if you're following this conversation, uh, this is kind of a, a really basic point. Um, when you're running a campaign, um, and you are representing the out party, in this case, Republicans, you wanna pin it as a referendum on the national party. And that's exactly what uh, Ms. Kukowski is gonna be doing. And it's gonna be about Joe Biden, inflation, uh, real income being down um, and on and on down the list and Democrats in Washington, 
not delivering. This is, you know, it's kind of a cookie cutter thing. The Republicans did the same thing in 2018 and, and, and other times when they were the out party. But you're also hearing from Ms. Piercy, the counter strategy, which is don't let it get nationalized. Don't let it focus on Washington, make each candidate unique and try to draw that out. Ms. Kukowski, I wanna ask you about one of the most extraordinary um, uh, aspects of 2022, which is this emerging war in Ukraine. Um, and you know, in the past, war and peace, you know, they were a big deal. Uh, you know, 1968 raised famously catapulted Richard Nixon into office on that issue. And you can see it over time. Is war and peace an issue anymore? So I really want to get into that. I want to button up the last subject real quick with something. I agree that this is a strategy and it was interesting. I kind of smirked listening to Rebecca because I think I've found myself saying the same thing, right? In other, in, in other um, election cycles, just opposite, right? When Trump was in the president, was president, it was Democrats focused on Trump nonstop. Now Biden's approval numbers are where Trump's numbers were this time in the midterm. And now, you know, things are flipped. I would say the one thing I would just point to that I think is a little different this time around that I think there was even an article recently, some Democrat strategists pointing this out. There's a culture war issue happening that I think pre was presented by COVID. COVID and some other dynamics um, in the economy that I think is going to be interesting. It's what helped the Virginia races with education and presenting education as more of an issue for Republicans to um, to to run on. You have you have critical race theory. You have a lot of things that are kind of happening in this culture war that I think is going to be interesting as we move into a midterm. Um, that I think even Democrats are trying to grapple with how to you know how to respond to um, post. COVID. Um, so sorry to go down a rabbit hole, but I just wanted no, no, to put let's, that up. Let's, let's, let's just pause there a second, because that's an excellent point. And you know, I think in many states uh, and localities, we are seeing the parents' right agenda being pushed forward. We're seeing the crime um, uh, agenda being pushed forward. Ms. Piercy, if you're trying to run a local race, don't those national themes about parents' rights, um, which gets played into race issues and COVID or crime, which is a concern in many communities. Doesn't, doesn't that kind of make it harder? It does, but I think that it's really important. And, you know, I, I like doing these panels with Kirsten because she's smart and she thinks like me and she knows how to inverse what I'm saying and say, I did that last cycle. Here's why it did or did not work. Um, I think it's really important to nationalize even some of the, or localize some of the national levels. So if we're talking about crime, let's not talk about crime that's happening in Washington, DC, or if you're running somewhere in New York and you're not running for a statewide office in New York, don't talk about New York City if you're running in Albany. It doesn't make sense to take these examples from other places and try and apply them to your race if it's not going to help you. And so I would encourage my candidates to stay hyper-local on a lot of these national issues that are permeating into the sort of the, the bloodstream of Democrats and Republicans and independents because they're issues that impact us all. But I think it's important for Democrats to find a way to bring this back home to how does this impact my life? And in this race, what will this candidate do to address my very serious concerns about XYZ, whether it's crime, inflation, whatever else it is that it's sort of up here at the national level, you can bring it back down here to your home home district as well. Does it matter that the local um, and state political media has been decimated? Um, it, we're just seeing a lot of data and patterns where races are increasingly nationalized, regardless of the smart uh, strategies of, of folks like both of you, that it's just difficult to run a campaign on local candidates, local issues, when voters are getting their information from a lot of national sources, including social media. Yeah, I mean, I would jump in. I would say yes. I mean, I think that that proved to be very difficult for, for the Republicans running um, last cycle when we wanted to localize a little bit more. Um, it's definitely very difficult because most of the reporters that you're dealing with are either from large papers who tend to get their news from national 
um, story, storylines, right? They're following national to get to their local. Um, so I do think that it's definitely very difficult um, to do the strategy that Rebecca's talking about. And for, I think it does further put the Democrats more in, in, into a bind as, as they look at, you know, all the different factors going into the midterms. So I grew up uh, during the Cold War and I grew up near West Point and I had, you know, a number of people I grew up with who served and some who went to, who were, you know, honored to be admitted to West Point. And the war and peace agenda and the idea of being soft on, um, you know, national security with regards to the Soviet Union slash Russia, it was, it, it, it just dominated our politics. So, uh, Ms. Kukowski, does that war and peace agenda matter now that we're looking at a war with Russia and it's, it's kind of growing invasion of Ukraine? I think it does. And I think that only, time, you know, the next couple of weeks and months will, month will, will definitely, will, things will shake out a little bit more because I'm not entirely sure that the general public saw this coming. I think that some people who pay attention a lot did see it coming and there's going to be a lot of back and forth of whether or not we should have seen it coming longer and maybe done something better, more about it um, sooner. But I think, you know, I look at, I've been thinking a lot about this and following this very closely because there's a division in my own party about how to handle this and what, you know, you, you'll see the you know, the Trump and Tucker Carlson wing saying good things about Putin, which I never dreamt would ever happen. And I'm sure, you know, Professor Jacobs, you never did either. Mm -hmm. um, I know my parents talk about it as well and say, oh my gosh, I, you know, I grew up in the Cold War. Um, I did not. And so to, you know, but I also look back at my political history and I've always worked for candidates who are considered a little bit more hawkish. And so I think you know, looking at that, I probably am a little more hawkish. People who served on Senate Foreign Relations Committee, um, John McCain was the first presidential campaign I worked for. Um, and so, you know, I think that there's a wing of the party still like me, um, like your Marco Rubio's and just some more people who tend to be a little bit more hawkish who are, I think are trying to figure out, okay, if some of our base doesn't want to go to war, which I don't think anybody wants to go to war, how do I, how do I figure out how to talk about this? Because Putin is a, is a bad guy and did a bad thing. Um, and there's potential for war in Europe and how does America deal with that? And so I think that even in the Republican party, this is gonna be a difficult couple of weeks and I'm, I'm gonna be very just, I'm gonna be watching um, and learning from it as we go. Ms. Piercy, um, I noticed that Joe Biden's approval rating has inched up. I don't wanna exaggerate it, but it's literally an inch up. Um, and you could see, and we've seen in the past where the country rallies around a president who's facing war against an adversary. Despite what you said about localizing races, do you think there could be an advantage to nationalizing a race in which there was uh, support for a president standing up to an aggressor in Europe like Putin? Well, I don't, I don't want to say that we hope for it, right? I think that in times of crisis, you always see the national politicians numbers go up, whether that's war or 9-11, and there is something to rally around as Americans. And I think that, you know, I didn't even know that Biden's numbers had gone up, but I got to be honest, like, could they have gone down? Like, no, it's pretty low. Um, look, I think that the U.S. and our allies have sent a clear message to Russia, and I think equally a clear message to Ukraine and our NATO allies about what will happen if Russia does continue this um, invasion. And so I think that that is something that the regular American people are starting to see on TV. They are starting to get more information. And I think Kirsten brings up a really good point. I think that there is this divide in the Republican Party and people who are consuming news on TV about where they're, where they're getting their news and how they are forming opinions about what's happening there. So there is this group of people that are rallying behind NATO, our European allies, Ukraine, have seen Putin for who he is and what he is. And then there is this other little wing of the Republican Party, which is going to be, she's right, it's going to be a tough couple of weeks for the Republican Party as they try and figure out where are we on this because Tucker Carlson's out there telling people that Putin's a good guy. 
And that is a really hard square to thing to square within the party, I think. And so, so I, I, go ahead. Is there a division also within the Democratic Party? I, I think back to the the, the really fractious um, debates in the Democratic Party during the Vietnam War, and you know, was, you know, guns or 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 better guns. You know, we've got this push in the progressive wing for you know very profound social policy spending. Um, you know, universal childcare, universal college education, um, um, money for poorer families. Um, you know, all of this is, is, you know, really, I think, in the heart of a lot of progressives. On the other hand, you've got Joe Biden, who's, you know, clearly making commitments, not to send troops, but to send um, support. Is there a tension within the Democratic Party? I don't, I think that there, if there is a tension, it's something that I have not picked up on yet. And I think it may be on tactics alone, not whether we stand behind the president and his offer of support to the Ukrainian people. And so that's where I think it's different than with the Republican Party. I think they don't they don't know whether they're pro-Ukraine or anti-Ukraine, right? Or pro-Putin or anti-Putin. Ms. Kukowska, did you want to jump in on this? Yeah, I would just say, so I think that that, that um, divide will probably develop as more specifics decisions are made, right? Because I think that traditionally the divide on foreign policy and troops, you know, to send troops, not to send troops, and spend money, not to spend money. Um, that is where the Democrats are going to have a conversation eventually, right? Because this is going in, a, in that direction. And I don't think anyone doubts that. Um, so I think right now you'll see the Republican Party try to sort this out. I will say one way that we're, we are starting to unify, you're seeing this more and more, um, Republicans talking about, well, if we had been um, taking steps towards energy independence, we wouldn't be you know, caught up in this as much. And so there are a couple of decisions, Keystone Pipeline and some of the lifting sanctions on the pipeline in Europe um, that I think you know, those decisions are gonna come back to haunt Biden at some point, right? Because now we're we're going to be paying for it here as Americans, and that's always a tough pill to swallow. And that's that is that is coming, and the president started warning people about that. Um, you know, while this this um, pot is brewing in in Europe, and Trump has launched his invasion of Ukraine, there's China, um, and um, you know, people I respect think there's a there's a growing probability that China's aggressiveness towards Taiwan may escalate. Um, you know, whether it's an invasion or not, I, I certainly don't know. Um, but could you see a, a, a Biden presidency, uh, Ms. Piercy, who over the next two or three years is increasingly about national security and what's going on abroad and his progressive domestic agenda getting kind of swept up and sidelined? I hope not. I think you've got to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. And I think that as the international scene develops and we've got to figure out what we are going to do on the diplomatic front, but also potentially on the support front in any of these instances, we've also got to keep this domestic agenda going at the same time. So to me, it's, a, it's not an either or. It's a like do both and figure out how to do them both very well. Watched well, this I would before. argue. I've seen this before. Lyndon Johnson <laughs> wouldn't do it, and inflation was, you know, part of that story. And then the coalition started to splinter, um, and already Biden's got, you know, a heck of a job. Ms. Kukowska, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, you're fine. I jumped in there. I would just, I was just going to say, um, I think it's very difficult um, when there's international issues like this to do that. I was looking back at. Um, one of the exceptions in the midterm um, election numbers was obviously right after 9-11 with, with President Bush, uh, George W. Bush. And his, his, if you remember, he came in with a huge domestic agenda, a lot about education um, that really wasn't able to move forward um, with any great speed because of what happened with 9-11 and, and you know, actions afterwards. And so I think it's gonna be really tough. I do also think there's gonna be, and where I'm already seeing this in a lot of the races that I'm working on, think there's a little bit to be said 
hear too that maybe some of Joe Biden's issues, like weaknesses at home, um, his decision in Afghanistan that I think a lot of people point to as um, maybe a symbol of weakness to world leaders, um, maybe help, not help because Putin was gonna do what he was gonna do. But I think put the Biden administration and, you know, and, and, and in a bit of a state of weakness. And I think that's also gonna contribute um, to just how things unfold moving forward. Weakness what? on the home front, weakness overseas. I want to shift to Donald Trump. Somehow we, we never stopped talking about um, the last president. And Ms. Kukowski, I'm curious, do you think Donald Trump is going to be a major factor um, in the 22 uh, midterm elections by setting the agenda, such as his comments about Putin being a genius and, and really outsmarting uh, the West, or his impact in selecting or at least influencing candidate selection in uh, state races and, and, that, and federal races? Um, I think that he still has a foothold on the party, obviously. Um, I went to my, my we, we caucus here in Minnesota. I went to my caucus here a couple of weeks ago at the precinct level, and it's clear that there are still Trump supporters and I caucus in Minneapolis. Um, so he's definitely as a hold, I would say too, there are campaigns out there that are still seeking his endorsement. Um, I think that that is becoming the, the divide in the campaigns who want his endorsement and would just be okay with it for, and versus the ones who are not um, wanting it at all. That's, it's becoming more divided. I think last cycle, everyone want, most people wanted it. And so I think I'm seeing a decline in that. I also have to say, I mean, I'm working on several races in the Midwest, uh, congressional and statewide, and I had to go and, and, and Google to see what, um, what he's up to right now. And I think his microphone has been taken away from him to a certain extent. Um, I think he's still out there on some conservative radio and obviously Fox News from time to time, but his, his microphone has really waned. And so I think it's, um, you know, he, he will find a way at some point, but um, I think he's still trying to figure out where, what his position is now that he's out of the White House and what his next steps are. Ms. Pierce, I'm curious how Democrats are thinking about it, particularly in wake of the effort in Virginia to frame the gubernatorial race as kind of a referendum on Trump or not, uh, which, which didn't work. Um, do you see running against Trump as a part of the strategy or is that kind of yesterday's news? So I, I think it's a really um, good point to bring up the Virginia race where Democrats tried unsuccessfully to tie Glenn Youngkin to Donald Trump. And I think that what is an important lesson here is that only works if the candidate is actually like Donald Trump. And so what Republicans are gonna to have to figure out is, is Donald Trump going to continue to be a factor in their primaries? And I think that there are primaries all up and down the ticket where there are Republican candidates falling all over themselves for the endorsement of Donald Trump without giving an eye to what is the general election population here look like. And there are Republicans that are not seeking and hiding from his endorsement and, and trying to distance themselves so they are more in the mainstream and have a better chance at that um, general election vote. I think that Trump is very much a factor though in escalating a lot of these primaries. And I think it's gonna be problematic for the Republican party as they figure it out. I mean, you can see him elevating some of these candidates that are flawed and unelectable and sort of getting these candidates to compete in like a game show like type of um, endorsement game just to get his support and then forcing them to take positions that are just completely out of step with what, particularly in the heartland, some of these Republicans would vote for in the, in the uh, general election. So it's interesting, you know, I, I sympathize with the Republican party for having to like figure out how to navigate this piece. But I do think that, you know, we certainly learned a lesson on our end that that is, it's not, it's not the silver bullet. We can't tie everybody to Trump if it's not gonna be believable. Ms. Kukowski, I wanna ask you about redistricting. Uh, we have about two thirds of states who have finished redistricting. We've got some big questions still. Uh, courts intervened in Ohio, North Carolina. So now 
legislature has to get back to work. We're waiting on Florida. So there's more work being done. But as you look at redistricting, do you look at it and say, you know, Republicans did very well this term or you see it as a wash? I mean, how, do you, how does redistricting play into your thinking about the Republican strategy in 22? Um, my sense is that it's going to be a little bit of a wash. I think you're going to have some states that I think the Democrats, you know, will will have, and I think there are even news reports, a little bit of gerrymandering that are going to make it, you know, some of their majorities very strong. Um, and then you're going to have some Republic, you know, red states that did the same, um, but they probably were already going to be pretty red and pretty blue. Um, and I think the general assessment, um, just based on, you know, just conversations I've been having is that maybe Republicans have a little bit of an, an advantage overall, but that they didn't try to run the table as much as they did in previous redistricting cycles. And that maybe that means that the Democrats, you know, could maybe call this a win because it wasn't as much of a loss as it could have been. So I guess that's maybe my general sense um, of where things are at. Very diplomatically put. Uh, Ms. <laughs> Piercy, um, New York, of course, uh, moved pretty hard in a, uh, I'd say a gerrymandering direction. Um, um, Staten Island and um, Park Slope, which for folks who don't know uh, New York area, it's, it's remarkable. Staten Island is, well, it's on an island. And Park Slope is across the water um, and in Brooklyn. Um, and those are now been kind of um, districted together. Uh, so you've got New York, which is now um, um, pretty hard partisan uh, map. But then you got Alabama, where uh, what has been a long time district held by um, an African-American is looks like it's now going to be endangered. Um, is this the way we should be fighting our elections where the parties and the operatives are choosing voters rather than voters? Is that unfair? I mean, that's, that's kind of a geeky kind of, I don't know, um, good, good soldier kind of comment about it. But I'm curious what you think. I, I wish it wasn't. I wish that there was a more fair way to do this. But unfortunately, it's a lot like other laws across the country that are driven by states' rights and what they can do there. And so some of it is by commission or by the legislature or by the governor's commission or some combination thereof. I do think Kirsten's right. Like it could have been worse for Democrats. And there certainly was some instances of gerrymandering on the very red and very blue states. One thing, Professor Jacobs, I will say though, Staten Island was redistricted with Brooklyn for all of the 2010 to 2020. So Getting up to Park Slope is not that big of a stretch in my mind, but I get what you're saying. Like it crosses water and that should be taken into consideration when we are drawing these districts. I would prefer 50 independent commissions that drew these lines throughout the country, but I think that there is so much resistance at the state level for that type of an operation to happen that it would take decades for us to get there. And I don't know that, I don't know that I don't know that it's top priority for any one legislature to push to push something like that through. Elsky, uh, I know Democrats look at states like Texas and they feel like, you know, Democrats should be doing much better in Texas. And you look at the aggregate numbers for the House seats and, you know, it's not a wipeout, but when you look at the distribution of seats, it's a very heavy uh, Republican um, majority. Um, do you think in time, as you look at the demographic shifts, that the way the maps are drawn are not gonna be high enough kind of flood wall to prevent Democrats from winning seats that appear to be moving in their direction. And again, based on the fact that we're seeing much more um, of voters of color in places like Texas and elsewhere in the Southwest. I think that that has been a discussion for my entire political career. And I really haven't seen the Democrats make really any progress. And so I think that it's an interesting, in theory, and I don't know, you know, I'm not as close to Texas politics as others. So I, yeah, I can't really say for sure what it contributes to it. I think in a lot of ways, it's when you control state government for as long as Republicans have in Texas, that it becomes very difficult um, to make 
large systemic changes the way the Democrats want to, right? And so I, I that's it, it's very it's it's hard it's hard because I I just I don't I don't see it. I I was told that you know in two election cycles when I was sitting at the RNC in 2010 in two cycles you know Texas is going to go blue and here we are in 2022 and we're still having the conversation. So. I I will jump in and say that the Texas maps are masterful in gerrymandering. Like they look crazy and they are exactly what is wrong with the system. And if it was Democrats, I would say the same thing. It is just borderline malpractice the way that they have drawn some of these districts to include either side of a highway in order to connect places in the state to one another. But I agree. Like I, I'm waiting for Texas to go blue too. <laughs> it still hasn't happened. We're gonna be waiting for a while. But, I, but I on the flip cool. side, you know, we were just talking about New York too, right? So it, it's when a, one party, and I'm not advocating that this is a good thing, when one party has controlled state government in a state for so long as they have in Texas and New York and opposing parties, it is very difficult to make change the way that would need to be made. Uh, we've, got a bunch of, we've got a bunch of, bunch of questions here. I've been filtering in some, but let me get to one from Bridget Tuck. who says, um, I'm on a rural school, school board. Any predictions on how much school issues will be a factor in the elections? Ms. Piercy? I, I think that you can use Virginia as a uh, roadmap for how much um, some of these down-ballot school-based races will have, like, they're going to be top of mind for a lot of parents, particularly in the face of COVID. And so I think you'll probably start to see a lot more attention being paid to these races, which is a great thing, right? I think that we should all be paying more attention down ballot no matter what. So I, I think that this is going to be one of the, the, the biggest national, like sort of new shiny thing that we all pay attention to for this cycle. Um, Ms. Um, Kukowski, I've got a question here from Chip Peterson about the impact of the Supreme Court. We've got the court's looming decision on Roe v. Wade. We've got uh, Biden's nomination and the Democrats' efforts to um, confirm a new Supreme Court justice. Um, is, uh, who is, uh, first off, do you think the Supreme Court battles are going to matter when you get to November? And if you do, who do you think, which party is gonna be helped or hurt by it? Um, great question. So my sense of the Supreme Court nominee um, is that that isn't gonna really make a dent. I think it could be helpful to the Democrats um, if he, if Joe Biden does what he says he's gonna do. If he doesn't do what he says he's gonna do, then it's gonna impact their enthusiasm gap they are already um, having an issue with. So I don't, I don't really see that as an, as a real factor. If anything, like, I think it's, if he doesn't do the right thing, it's more of a liability um, for Joe Biden, I think. Um, on Roe v. Wade, I think that could be a potential game changer, frankly. I think that you have a lot of people, um, you know, it's obviously a base issue um, in the Republican Party. And if, it, you know, depending on the decision, that is a huge, huge um, enthusiasm um, issue for, for the Republicans um, in general. But I would also say, depending on the decision, um, you know, polling does show that most independents and even some Republicans do not believe it should be reversed. And so I think that that could be a potential, when I say game changer, that's what I mean. I think it's something that it's close to the election um, and, it, and, and and independence and some Republican women don't like what they see, that could be an issue. I, yeah, yeah. I, I just want to jump in here. I think everything Kirsten says is right on, on this, particularly with the Supreme Court. But I think that there's another layer to Roe, and that is our state legislatures, where Democrats and Republicans, like some of these chambers where they're super close, um, are already taking up some of this legislation to either outlaw or codify Roe v. Wade as a state-based law so that we're not banning abortions um, now before, before Roe is redecided in the Supreme Court. So if Roe's gutted, there's already 26 states that are ready to take on this kind of legislation. Most of those are democratically held states. Some of those are Republican held states. And so I think that depending on the decision, you'll see an interest in some of these swingier 
um, chambers, so places like Michigan, Arizona, um, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, where they're really toss-ups. And it will be important for Democrats and those um, more socially liberal independents and Republicans that Kirsten mentioned to ensure that they get a legislature that's going to uphold this when they reconvene in 2023. Um, a couple of questions here about the Democrats problem with rural voters. Um, and the, the storyline here is that Democrats have been losing rural voters, presidential elections and congressional elections for some time. It's not a new thing, but it has gotten worse. There's a debate in the Democratic Party about uh, basically let that ship sink. The Democrats should put their resources and time into the urban areas and then the metro suburban areas. Um, the other part, the other strategy is, well, we can do certain things that would at least stop the bleeding of votes um, that are necessary for statewide races, not, not going to win the rural votes, but doesn't have to be such a wipeout. Ms. Piercy, which side of the debate are you on? Should the Democrats go all in on the metro areas um, or should they be running statewide strategies? I mean, it's statewide strategies, but I, my when I was running campaigns in places like Ohio and Indiana, it was never a let's not go to this county. It's like, a, how do we how do we lose by less and engage this amount of voters in Putnam County, knowing we're going to lose, but instead of getting 41%, can we get 45%? And so it's an engagement level that is respectful of the Democrats and progressives that are there. But I think that the answer for a long time for Democrats has just been like, forget it, because we can't bank enough of those small counties to make it matter. My, my theory always has been, yes, we can, but I, I recognize we're in the minority. And Professor, you asked, what is the problem? And like the answer to that problem is like, we just don't do it. Like we ignore them. And I know that's not right. And it's probably not an answer that you want to hear. You know, whoever asked if you're a Democrat, you don't want to hear it. But like, that's just what happens. The, the urban areas are so vote rich. It's tough to figure out how to balance the two. I think it's gotten better over the last cycle or two, COVID sort of notwithstanding, because it got so weird. But I think it's an issue that is is really important to raise when you're talking to statewide and national campaigns. Um, uh, Ms. Kowski, I want to flip the question to you um, and use Minnesota as an example where you've had uh, Republicans repeatedly winning um, uh, majorities in the state legislature, but they've been unable to win a statewide race in some time. Um, and so should should Republicans be uh, you know very comfortable with their their almost monopoly in the rural areas and the exurbs um, and give up on the urban areas where it's very difficult for Republicans to get votes where there you know there's a lot of animosity and not many Republican voters. Um, I mean I know I mean we should not be giving up on urban areas. Um, I do think that our issue. The Republican issue is slightly different in that I think our battleground is much more in the suburbs. And so I think that if we were able to really, you know, really figure out how we can um, do much better in the suburbs, I think some of our urban problem would also go away. Um, but I think we still haven't unlocked that. And I think that the Trump years didn't do an, us any help in that way. I also think, too, one thing that I kind of wanted to just what I kept feeling I wanted to chime in during Rebecca's is, you know, spot on. But I think one thing is, too is candidates. I think, you know, not in the context necessarily of statewides, but I look at congressional I'm, I'm working on in Wisconsin three, and you had a Democrat, Ron Kind, who fit his district very, very well for a long time, but he's no longer, he isn't running for re-election. And I don't know that the Democrats are going to be able to keep that, that district. And I, and I just look sometimes at that. And I think that the Democrat Party, and frankly, the Republican Party, too, has to look a little bit at candidates and whether candidates can fit the districts and not run super progressive candidates who can't win in these rural districts and, you know, the, on the flip side for Republicans. You know, I would just want to follow up on your point about, no, we're not going to give up on urban areas. You know, there were, there used to be Republicans like Jack Kemp, um, who, you know, just year after year would have proposals to revitalize urban areas, who was supporter of 
food stamps, was an ally on um, you know, programs from a conservative standpoint that would really be aimed at voters of color. I don't really see Republicans doing that. Um, it, it, it seems like the Republican Party is kind of, you know, in fact, just in policy, just kind of walked away. And, and then, as you said, there's, you know, Trump is widely seen in, in, in communities of color as hostile um, on racial issues. Is that, how, how should we interpret that? Um, I think that you're absolutely right. I think I, I, as soon as you started talking, I thought, um, where, is Paul, where is Paul Ryan today? no longer in the mix at all. And he is somebody who always had a roadmap um, that included fiscally conservative, but you know, socially responsible um, programs. And I think part of the reason that that, that has got, become so polarized is the state of, I think that in some ways the Democrat party took some of the social programs too far one way, our messaging went, went too far the other way. And now we, we, you know, we have to be no social programs and there's waste, fraud and abuse. And so I, I there it's, it's unfortunate. And I think it's going to take the right candidate. That's going to, that's going to be able to have that conversation. But right now, our, I think our fiscal situation is, is well beyond having that right now. Ms. Piercy, um, there's been a lot of concern, frankly, about progressives and, the, and what's seen as the damage to the Democratic Party. Um, and you've probably been following these stories quite closely. In Minneapolis, you had a ballot initiative to abolish the, the Minneapolis police force and replace it with a new public safety um, uh, of force. And um, that ballot initiative was defeated uh, in Seattle, um, Ann Davison was elected after she quit the Democratic Party um, and uh, ran against a, a Democratic candidate who proposed abolishing the police force and Davison won Adams in New York. Um, um, there's a sense that the Democratic Party, at least the progressives, are at a step with public opinion. They're in step with their core values, but Maybe have written off uh, Americans and other Democrats. How do you how do you how do you think about those kind of arguments and criticisms? Well, I know Kirsten's going to say something smart after this about it because I think that she will she will she will take this and and flip it back on me. Look, I think that these people are really running on something that they believe in, and I think that a good example of this and a person who won is Cori Bush. She ran on abolished the police and Black Lives Matter and took out an incumbent. So I think that there is at least one example that comes from top of mind. It, you know, I don't know that it's completely out of step with what lots of people think. I think it might be a little bit too far for the mainstream and general election populations at this point, particularly in places like Seattle and, you know, New York is an interesting example because Eric Adams is a former police officer. And you've got a former police officer also running for mayor in Los Angeles. And some of these bigger cities are, are really being posed with this question of, do we want more police or do we want less police? And crime is at the top of every, everybody's polling right now. And so I, I think that that's a, an important question to raise, but I don't know that it's necessarily completely out of step with some some not most of the Democratic Party. So your point is that the criticism of the Democratic Party for being out of touch with majority public opinion is really not the issue because um, the question is, are, are members of Congress and, and other office holders in the Democratic Party, are they in touch with the values of the Democratic Party? And then I guess the follow-up question is, is that setting the Democratic Party up for losing competitive races where progressives are not the majority. I mean, you can, you can win some places with that, but there are a lot of, you know, swings districts and states where it's going to be harder, like what happened in Virginia. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that it's important to, going back to what Kirsten and I have both been saying, like your candidates have to fit these districts and fitting the districts is, is 
means, you know, having an eye to rural voters and what's on their minds and how that might be different from an urban voter and what's on their minds, particularly if you're running statewide or in one of these districts that encompasses both. Thank you very much. Ms. Kikowski? Yeah, lots of thoughts. I um, I worked on the, the anti-defund the police movement here in Minneapolis last fall, and it was very interesting. And I, you know, it, if I feel like Rebecca, that, you know, pushback would be if you can't win a referendum like this in, in Minneapolis, where Ilhan Omar gets, you know, reelected by, I don't know, eight, I'm guessing, but 85% of the vote, right? I don't, I just think that there's still some issues with the, with the principle of behind the defund the police. And I also think if you were to look at the numbers um, who voted against their, the ballot measure here, um, minority areas voted pretty strongly against defunding the police. And so I, it's, it's, it's just going to be interesting and I, it, to watch over the next you know, couple of years that I don't think it's going away. Um, but I do think that, that here in particular in Minnesota, I think a lot of voters saw what happened with the defund the police message and then crime has been pretty sky high since that happened. And I think you're, you're, the Democrat party here, but also nationally is gonna have a really hard time decoupling defund the police and sentencing issues um, with crime that has been pretty high for several years since those discussions started. Can I just ask one question that is not necessarily, it may be rhetorical, but I think Kirsten's right. Like maybe defund is not, is not the like issue that we need to be running on, but is it the principle or is it the rhetoric and or understanding from the general population about what it is or what it actually meant in the Minneapolis referendum last year? I don't, I don't know the answer because I haven't worked on one of these. So I don't know like what people actually think about it. I think and that's a big, yeah, yeah, that's a big discussion because I do think, you know, there's, there's a big picture where the city council members pushing defund here, were standing behind a big defund in block letters, right? And they ran away from that. Um, so I think as a slogan, as messaging, it became pretty clear that that was not a winning message. But I think that was also, you know, what it meant behind defunding was it was litigated extensively and I think it still overwhelmingly went under and so it I, I've been thinking for quite some time you know since it went under how is it going to come back again because you know it will here in Minneapolis and so yeah. in what form will it come back and maybe they'll learn from last time. Got a few qu more questions here that I want to get to. Um, one is about down ballot races. Um, and I wanna focus in on the Secretary of State races. Um, these are offices, frankly, up until, well, before 2020, um, you were kind of a, a good guy or gal in the party who ran for it. Um, it's, it's not really a stepping stone to somewhere else. You, you know, not in all states, but most states, Secretary of State administers the election. They have a role in certifying the election results. Um, it tends to be, pretty technical, pretty legalistic, frankly. Um, after 2020 though, and Donald Trump's charges that the election was stolen because of massive fraud, which has been disproven again and again, and the courts, many courts, um, over 90 judges, including plenty of Republican appointed judges, um, have come back and said there's no evidence for this. Nonetheless, there are 11 Secretary of State candidates across the country who are running and a group of them are endorsed by Donald Trump uh, because they are endorsing his argument that 2020 was stolen. Um, maybe the, I don't know, the kind of um, spotlight race is gonna be in Georgia where you had Brad Ra uh, Raffensperger, Secretary of State, voted for Donald Trump, rock solid Republican, but followed the law and certified the results after three recounts. Um, as a Biden win. Um, and the president called him and said, go find some votes. Um, Raffensperger said no. And he recorded the call and he leaked it to the Washington Post. So uh, he's, got, he's got Trump after him. 
Trump has now endorsed uh, Representative Jody Heiss, who buys the big lie about the 2020 election. And I'm just curious, um, Ms. Kukowski, um, what can the Republican Party do about this? This seems like one of those cases where do we really want uh, hard-edged partisans who aren't going to follow the law to be nominated and running for office with, of course, a good chance to, to win? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, I don't have much to say on it other than it does, it does everybody else running as a, as a Republican a disservice to have those people running as Republicans. Um, I don't know that there's anything the party can do. I think there's something that people who do what I do and work in politics can do and make sure that that primary is won by the right person. Um, and I think that it ultimately will be um, because I do think that that lie, you know, I think that from what I've seen since then um, working with candidates that there are very few and far between who still are are on that bandwagon. And so I think that, you know, my hope and expectation is that they'll do the right thing. But, you know, there there's still fights happening. Wisconsin, right next door here, they're still having an internal battle um, in the GOP where a very conservative speaker of the house who's been there for a very long time is, and is kind of fighting um, because he he's standing up against that um, kind of regime in Wisconsin. And so I do think, you know, I, I would just say, it'll be interesting to have it, how it plays out. My expectation is that that it'll go the right way. Miss um, um, Piercy, uh, Stan Greenberg, who's a well-known pollster and, and political consultant, uh, got to start with Bill Clinton and is famous among us geeks because who's also a Yale political science professor before all that. Uh, he's written a very interesting piece in the American Prospect uh, just in the last week. And he points to the slippage of, of or the, the inability of Democrats to pick up as many votes as they'd like among Asians, among rural voters. And his solution is that Democrats should be speaking and playing to the working class discontent much more than they are. That that whatever your criticism of Donald Trump, he's mastered this kind of rhetoric of, of kind of the grieved populace uh, that is connecting. Um, do you think this Greenberg strategy of mobilizing Blacks, Hispanics, and Asians um, um, and, and white voters could work? Is that the unifying um, kind of strategy that the Democrats should be adopting? Well, I, I think it's part of it. Um, you know, I think there's, there's early, there's early communications happening from build back better the committee and not necessarily from the Biden administration, but touting the Biden agenda and what's, what's gotten done or will be done in the next year ahead of the midterms and it's focused on African American and Latino voters, which you know, somebody asked me a question the other day and it was like, it's so early. And it's like, well, we talk to white voters every day. Like, why are we not talking to all voters every day? And I think that that, you know, the fact that they brought it up as a question to me, I was like, do we not deserve to be talked to on a regular basis about what's happening as a member of the Democratic Party? And so I think that the message matters almost as much as who the message is being delivered to. So what are we talking about? I think you are, and Stan is totally right. The, the, Trump was masterful at talking to people about their jobs, about the working class, about how corporations are trying to screw them. And it worked, it worked for him. And I think where he got caught up in keeping that, that entire sect of people that voted for him in 2016 is like, he didn't help deliver on it, right? Deliver to fix any of the things that he identified as problems throughout his campaign in 2015 and 2016. Ms. Kukowski, one of the uh, most loyal block of voters for Republicans for decades after World War II were the educated voters. Um, this was kind of the, I don't know, martini sipping crowd uh, the, the, that, would, that were you know, loyal to the Republican Party. They tended to be in the suburbs. Um, and those voters have been slipping away from the Republican Party. Um, there's almost been this inversion of class where the, the Republican party is doing better among the white working class and um, the Democrats are doing better among 
the kind of um, you know professional um, uh, and better educated voters. Um, is that is there a strategy for Republicans winning back those better educated voters at a time when when the Trump language and agenda seems so prominent? I mean, I just keep thinking there has to be a way to talk to working class and I don't know if intellectuals is an, 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 another word for it. There has to be a way to do it. And, you know, and maybe um, part of it is what Glenn Youngkin tapped into in Virginia, because I think he talked to both. And I think he talked to him about education, because what do those two working, you know, groups and voting blocks have in common? education. Um, so I do wonder if the new kind of working class um, populist message of, it, of for 2022 is education and uh, government overreach slash mandates from COVID. Um, I think that those things have been popping up more and more. And I wonder if those are ways that we can be talking to both, you know, voting blocks consistently. Uh, we're almost out of time, but just a quick uh, wrap-up question. Ms. Piercy, uh, thinking ahead to 2024, I know it seems like the next Man. century. Um, if Joe Biden doesn't run for re-election, um, do you think people like Elizabeth Warren might jump back in to the nomination battle? I'm just speculating here. Sure, why not? If we're just speculating, why not? I think everybody gets back in. Half the Senate's going to run. Half the House is going to run. It's going to be you know, it's a it's a redux of what 2019 was for Democrats. Is there any inkling in your mind about whether Biden's actually going to run for re-election? He's he said yes, of course I'm going to do it, but he has to say that. Um, yeah, I I believe him though. I think that he also understands what 2023 and 24 would be like if he didn't run. And so you think you think he will be running? Yeah, hopefully he saves us from that again so soon. Um, Ms. Kukowski, looking ahead, 2024, is there, there are a few Republican presidential candidates we should start reading up about? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of them. Uh, Nikki Haley, I think, is, is one of them. Um, uh, you have your Marco Rubio, um, you, have, you have your Governor DeSantis, but that conversation is obviously um, interesting because of what what President Trump may or may not do. And I think that that's really impacted how those people um, can talk about their plans for 2024. Um, the more interesting question to Rebecca is, will Hillary Clinton primary Joe Biden in 2024? No, that's the that's... first time I've heard that, but oh my oh, God. Oh, really? Oh no, yeah. that comes up regularly uh, no. here uh, on campaign. I'm, 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 I follow the Clintons. No, I don't see that happening in any universe. In any case, this is great. We've talked about the 2022 election just coming up in November. And hey, folks, we're already talking about 2024. So you get it all here. Um, really want to thank our guest, uh, Rebecca Piercy, um, Democrat, most recently the campaign manager for Elizabeth Warren's terrific campaign run in 2020, and uh, Kirsten Kukowski, who's running a really terrific, terrific firm uh, K2 and company, women-owned, women-operated, and is uh, active in several congressional races uh, this term. I really appreciate your candor and your good humor. Um, very much appreciated. Thank you. Thanks to both of you. Thanks for having um, us. Yeah, I just want to give you a heads up that um, a podcast of this conversation and a YouTube video will be up in the next day or two. Um, and I want to let you know that we've got a Camp, another event coming up um, in April. This is going to be a major conference on thinking about election administration and the challenge of election administrators communicating to the public so that the misinformation and the conspiracy theories can be addressed head on. Um, we've seen this in Arizona, for instance, and elsewhere. There are going to be some terrific people coming. If you want to go deep on that, it's going to, the conference will be April 22nd, 9 to noon. It will be uh, Zoomed uh, right here, and we're going to have a terrific program. Um, also, I just want to give you a heads up. All of our programs are brought to you free, uh, but of course, they take resources to organize and staff up. If you'd like to make a contribution, please get in touch with us. We welcome that. 
Once again, I want to thank our guests, Kirsten Kukowski and Rebecca Piercy. Thank you very much.